Hello, I'm Paul Mangel. I'm Balnoz Ekseni. And I'm Yulia Stancheva. Welcome to Just Say the Word, a podcast in which we pay homage to our relationship with words, their meaning and their power to create our world. Everything begins with a word. Words have the undeniable power to heal or to hurt, to lift someone up or bring them down. Words can define our beliefs and influence our behavior. In every episode, we invite a special guest and ask them, what is your word? What does it mean to you? Where does it come from? As we immerse ourselves in the world of each guest, we will tell you the story of their chosen word and how it relates to their life's experiences, successes and achievements. Our first guest is Clive Stafford-Smith, the British attorney and the founder of Reprieve, a human rights organization focusing on the rights of death row prisoners and Guantanamo detainees. Welcome, Clive. The time has come for you to just say the word. Language. That must be one of the most meaningful weapons, tactics you can use. Tell us why you brought language along to the show. Well, it was actually one of the early lessons I learned during capital trials. What I would pass on to my students these days is probably the most important lesson. And it goes a bit like this. The first capital trial I was doing uh, was in Georgia, and I did what any pompous English twat would do, um, which is I quoted Shakespeare at the jury, the quality of mercy is not strained, it droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven. About why, you know, about why they should show mercy. <laughs> nice Are you about to tell me I'm not allowed to use the T word? No, no, you okay. carry on. No, no, if you go. <laughs> anyway, uh, so I was quoting that, and the jurors looking at me like I just got out from under a log. Uh, lawyer came up to me, Bobby Lee Cook, at the end, and he said, Clive, that's a mighty fine piece of poetry, but these here jurors don't know who Shakespeare is. I used the same quote myself last week in a capital trial, but I began by saying, I think it was in the book of Job I read, and then he quoted <laughs> Shakespeare. The lesson I learned from that wasn't that I should lie to jurors. It was that actually the language they spoke was the language of the Bible, not the language of Shakespeare. And um, once you figure that out, people who have sworn up and down that they'll impose a death sentence, as you have to do to get on a jury in a capital case in America, become quite easy to persuade not to do it in most cases, because you then just remind them that uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 7 says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And that means that a juror who does, as I'm asking, as the defense lawyer, which is shows mercy, gets to go to heaven, whereas if they sh don't show mercy and do what the prosecution wants, they get eternal damnation. And so then, surprisingly, it becomes massively easier to persuade an American Christian jury to do the kind thing than it would a British jury, where it's actually quite hard to figure out what language they speak. You know, if you're going to defend someone on capital trial, if you, you know, and you're going to save them from, from death penalty, talking to the jury in their language makes makes absolute sense. What what other kind of modulations are there within that? Do you have a, a kind of intellectual West side that you speak to in one way and a, and a, and a kind of working uh, process-driven group on the east side? Do you, do you really refine your, your language to really look at the jury in that way? Well, I think one of the issues um, that you have to bear in mind is that everyone's a jury. 
Um, when, when you're trying to persuade people to do the right thing, everyone is. And it's not just the 12 people in a courtroom. It's also the prosecutor, it's the uh, judge, it's the, the sheriff, it's everyone around. And as a consequence, what you mustn't do is what most left-wing American lawyers do, which is they deride other people's beliefs as being fundamentally barbaric. But the same applies to everyone. I was giving a talk just yesterday to a bunch of um, 11 and 12-year-old kids in my son's school about the death penalty. And the number one rule when you're talking to 11 and 12-year-old kids in school is you've got to A, swear, because they love that, (laughs) and B, you've got to abuse the staff, you know, hopefully kindly, but you always pick on them. So if you're doing a talk about torture, you have a staff person volunteer, and then you have the kids torture the staff person. And then they really listen. And, and, you know, so it's, it's true for everybody in life. And it was a lesson that I didn't realize when I started out. But I think now, if you're going to persuade people, you've always got to know what language they listen in. Absolutely. And I was thinking about this earlier because the use of that word or that phrase, death penalty, you know, to mean something like the ultimate sanction or or something that you do to people, you know, because they've done something bad themselves. You know, you're fighting to a certain extent, not just the idea that you're going to kill someone, but the, the kind of throwaway notion that death penalty is a thing that we use as an ultimate sanction. Well, you're right. I, you know, I get what you're saying. And Actually, one of the most important things with a very, very serious issue like that, like life and death, which unfortunately is what I deal with every day, is you mustn't take it too seriously. And you've got to figure out a way. I think that if you can't put what you're trying to say into an aphorism, then number one, you don't know what you're trying to say. And number two, you're never going to get it across to the people you're trying to persuade. So with the death penalty, you know, I was talking to the kids yesterday about this, you know, why do we kill people who kill people to show that killing people is wrong is the sort of phrase that one rolls out. Mm. Because it's just a very simple way of reducing um, something to a a comprehensible but rather silly sounding uh, thing. And, you know, every trial I've ever done, I've had an aphorism. And what you do is what Roger Waters told me he does in his songs for Pink Floyd and now himself, which is, and and you'd know this, Paul, from your own musical talents, which is that you have a very, very repetitive refrain, which is catchy. And that's true of songs, but it's also true of trials. Um, And so, for example, you know, when you're dealing with a case that revolves around a snitch, which so many cases do, I tend to use the aphorism, everyone hates a snitch. Uh, and then you ask jurors in jury selection, tell me the, your favorite story, the one you most remember about some tattletale in school who told a lie about someone you care about. And you get everyone talking in the language of everyone hates a snitch. And soon that becomes the total focus of the trial. So when the snitch takes the stand, and you cross-examine the snitch about, why don't you tell these jurors the snitch who snitched on you who you hate most? Yeah. You know, there's nothing that person can say, right? Because yeah. if they tell a story about how some nasty snitch told lies about them, that just um, makes your point. And if they deny it, no one believes them. And the entire case now revolves around this very simple, simple phrase. And 
I think that's how you get people to pay attention to the essence of whatever it is, whether it be the death penalty as a nasty, unpleasant concept or the trial of someone you're, you're helping. Yeah. That's got a lot to do with the ability to control language and manage language. But what happens when language gets translated in some way or language get, you know, when you can't control it or it gets lost or misplaced or people misunderstand? How, what kind of situations can you get into when, when that happens? <laughs> oh, well, you're just reminding me of one of my favorite Guantanamo stories, which I think I've told you before, and forgive me for that. But it involved uh, a very young chap who was 14 years old called Mohammed El-Gharani. And Mohammed was, his family was from Chad, but he'd been brought up in Saudi Arabia. And the Saudis, when it comes to racism, really make Mississippi look quite good. And if you're young and black and not really Saudi, um, then you're not allowed to go to secondary school. So Mohammed was a really smart kid. And he managed to change the date on his passport and went to Pakistan in 2001 to study English and computers. And he gets there and he's doing that in Karachi, which I should say is a thousand kilometers from uh, Afghanistan, when 9-11 happens. And there were a bunch of bounty uh, stickers going around, you know, offering money for turning over Muslim men to the U.S., and he got turned over for a bounty of $5,000, a lot of money there. And he starts being interrogated. And the U.S. had a bunch of interrogators who obviously didn't speak Arabic. And so they were using a Yemeni translator. Okay. And in Yemeni Arabic, the word zalat means money. But in Saudi Arabic, it means salad uh, or tomatoes. Okay. And so they're asking this 14-year-old kid who's never met a white person before. There's all these Americans saying, oh, when you went to Pakistan, what zalat did you have with you? And he thought they were talking about salad. So he's quite taken aback. And he says, I didn't have any. And they say, you have to have zalat when you're in Pakistan. (laughs) And he said, no, 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 I could get zalat anywhere I needed it. (laughs) And so at that point, the CIA people thought, ah, well, obviously, he's an Al-Qaeda financier then, if he could get money anywhere he needed it. So they say, where could you get Zalat in Karachi? And he lists a number of vegetable stalls that he could remember <laughs> from Karachi. And they write all of this stuff down. Oh, wow. That night, he's in the cage they're holding him in, uh, in between interrogations. And he said, wow, you know, I just had the weirdest conversation with these Americans. They wanted to know where you could get tomatoes in Karachi. And some old Yemeni told him, uh, I think you had a misunderstanding. So he goes back the next time he's being interrogated and said, I, I was talking about tomatoes. You were apparently talking about money. And they didn't believe him. And he ends oh, up getting wait. taken to Guantanamo Bay for several years, where he learned very good English, by the way, and mm-hmm. made up songs that he would sing at the American guards that they didn't like. But all of that revolved around this ridiculous misunderstanding about language. Yeah. Using language these days, people have to be so careful, uh, not only in the legal context, you know, pretty much anyway. But it's quite fun when they make mistakes sometimes. I mean, I, I had a thing going on in Guantanamo where I'd tell all my clients about the rabbit. And the way to deal with um, with the U.S. government was to assume that we're Br'er Rabbit, who's the little, yeah. clever, slightly arrogant rabbit, 
and their brother Fox, um, who is the big, powerful, and amazingly stupid American government. So I would describe this whole, you know, Brer Rabbit and the Tar Baby to them. And, you know, that worked pretty well in English. My French, well, you'll deny it, but my French is good enough to tell Brer Rabbit stories. But when it got to Italian, I couldn't remember the word Rabbit. Yeah. And I finally remembered Cornelio, I think it is. Um, and so I tell these stories. And, uh, you know, it's quite confusing for these poor Muslim men in Guantanamo to have me banging on about rabbits. But what amused me a couple of years later was when it came back around. And, you know, the intelligence officers in Guantanamo, and I use that word loosely, had heard this and it had gone around like Chinese whispers. And, um, they'd decided there was some escape plot called Rabbit, oh, my word. Rabbit that was going around Guantanamo Bay. So I kind of love it. Kind of with tunnels and, uh, yeah, the whole <laughs> works. Yeah. Bear, <laughs> Just touching on one thing, you know, your, your education, where you came from, the language that you use, I think an education and, and, you know, plenty of language helps. How do you actually manage your, your Englishness and your, and your public school background and your, and, your, and your very high level of education? How does that play out uh, within language and within your job? Well, it's actually a massive advantage because there was a study in Georgia uh, where the average person thought that someone with a British accent was twice as smart as they were, which obviously is a prejudice that's incredibly favorable, uh, and that was fine. But for example, you know, this woman came up to me after a trial and she said, I love your accent. I didn't understand a word you said from beginning to end of trial, but I could listen to you all day. And I'm slightly concerned that you're doing a death penalty case and she says she doesn't understand you. But you know, people were just generally incredibly kind on yeah. that, which was really nice. So overall, I didn't have a problem. I've got two problems. One is I simply, even though I have an American passport, and I've lived in America a quarter of a century, I simply can't say the word water in a way that people in McDonald's understand. Uh, so what do you get when you say water? <laughs> you know, you say water. 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 <laughs> you try H2O, that's certainly not the way. One, one last question, Clive. You know, just on, on back, to, back to language and the, and the use of this word reprieve. What was the thinking behind choosing reprieve? Well, as I'm sure you know, uh, when you're choosing to name a non-profit organization, uh, the number one rule is you go to the pub with your friends. And you <laughs> it's like a band. Who, it is. And it's, it's, you've got to have people who have a good imagination. And there are a couple of points. Yeah. You can either have a charity that has a good acronym. Uh, so the one I had in New Orleans was a dreadful title, the Louisiana Capital Assistance Center. But actually, the LCAC sounded good. Mm. Um, or you have one with a pithy single word or something very short. Uh, which is why we had reprieve. And there are some that work really well in different ways. So I think Amnesty International is a great name. Yeah. And you call it Amnesty, you call it AI. And AI has positive ring because it's artificial intelligence sort of thing. So there are these rules that you want to do. And you know, honestly, I never thought reprieve was such a great name. But it did mean that we were trying to reprieve someone off being executed. Mm. And... The, the new nonprofit I, I set up, originally we were having some clever 3DC thing, but I don't think that makes any sense. So we're now looking at another one, 
which really uh, describes in a joyous way what we might be. And I'm thinking of pinching the title The Justice League or just Justice League. Oh, wow, um, yeah. Because then we can choose. I, I don't, you know, I, I, I sort of differentiate, obviously, between Marvel and DC Comics. And actually, I'm a bit of a Marvel comic person. I'd like to be Thor from Thor Ragnarok. So, you know, I'm thinking of changing it to, to the Justice League. And if they have problems, which I don't think they have a right to legally, we can always change ourselves to Justice Legal or something clever like that. But anyway, it's fun making up names, um, but you've got to have a good one. Well, we're lucky enough to have uh, Lucio Bagnolo coming on from Amnesty International in, uh, in a couple of, uh, couple of podcast time. And he's the, he heads up language. Uh, cool. and translation there so uh, we'll have a chance to talk to him and ask him how grateful he is, is that he has a good name for yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> Clive it's been absolutely fantastic to have you on the show really appreciate insights and uh, good luck with everything my pleasure I'll see you very soon just say the word just say the word we all have different associations with the word language which have been shaped by our unique experiences But we can't deny it that to all of us, language means one thing, a complex system of communication and an important tool to convey our thoughts and beliefs to others. Have you ever wondered where the word language comes from? How and when did it originate from? Here is some intel on the etymology background of the word according to our language detective, Balner. Language, lingua, long, tongue. This is the family of words around language with lingua from Latin and then long from French, both meaning tongue. And of course, then there is mother tongue, meaning the language you speak from birth. Languages define us, and anthropologists, sociologists, and philosophers have revealed their deep influence over our development as humans. Language is also a code, a cipher, and can be a secret. And so we have more current uses of the words such as programming, meta, and markup languages. In some other language families, the word language means the word tongue. For example, in my own native language, Kazakh, language is translated as tel, derived from old Turkic languages. It's the same in Turkish, dil, Uzbek, Kyrgyz, til, and etc. And they all mean tongue. It has the same meaning in Slavic languages too. For example, in Bulgarian, ezik. In Russian, it is yazik. And it sounds similar in Slovak, Polish, Czech, Slovenian, Bosnian, Croatian, Macedonian, and Serbian. In Ukrainian and Belarusian, though, it sounds different. Movu, move. But they also mean tongue, and it's the same in many more languages. Languages are deeply imprinted in our culture. The power of words has fascinated many poets, writers, musicians, and philosophers for centuries. One of the greatest poets of all times, William Shakespeare, once said, The language I have learned these 40 years, my native English now I must forego. And now my tongue's use is to me no more than an unstringed viola or a harp. Language is like the engine of a poem. It fuels every emotion, every thought and sensation provoked by the words that are the beating heart of the poem. Another one of my favorite authors, the Chilean poet Pablo Neruda, has a poem about the word. 
And this particular portion of the poem is especially beautiful. I drink to the word, raising a word or a shining cup. In it I drink the pure wine of language or inexhaustible water, material source of words and cup and water and wine give rise to my song. Do you love music? Because we do. We searched far and wide the word language in music and guess how many times it appears in lyrics, names of albums, songs and artists. Nearly 15,000. Perhaps some of these already spring to your mind. I personally love everything but the girls' fifth studio album, The Language of Life, which blends perfectly pop with jazz in a moody but also provocative way. And of course, the stereophonics, language, sex, violence, other, which brought back the harder and more abrasive alternative rock and indie rock sound the band were known for. Do you remember Body Language, the 1982 dance funk song from Queen's album Hot Space? It was written by Freddie Mercury. The music video for the song was the first one to be banned from MTV for its nudity, despite the members of Queen being fully dressed. How many movies have you watched with the word language in the title? If you search online, you can probably find at least a hundred of them. One that is worth mentioning is Goodbye to Language by Jean-Luc Godard. It premiered in competition at the 2014 Cannes Film Festival and won the jury prize. Some of the film's more elaborate shots have been called innovative techniques of the film vocabulary, like a separation shot in which a single, unbroken shot splits into two separate shots that can be viewed simultaneously through either the left or the right eye and then returns to one single 3D shot. Check it out! And when it comes to books about language, we enter a vast territory. Does the world look different in other languages? A lot of people believe that the language that you speak alters your thought in profound ways. This was the concept behind George Orwell's 1984. In the Newspeak language, if you got rid of words like freedom, those words would become, as Orwell put it, literally unthinkable. Another incredibly famous book is Steven Pinker's The Language Instinct – How the Mind Creates Language, which will change the way you see language. Pinker advocates that through evolution, we have developed a language instinct which is hardwired into the brain. We also ought to mention here another interesting book by the Australian academic Nicholas Evans, Dying Words which focuses on the small languages that make up about 96% of all spoken languages in the world, but are spoken by only about 4% of the world's population. Evans gives you an idea of how the world seems when you speak a very small language and how you interact with lots of other groups who also speak very small languages. Lastly, we have to bring into the spotlight the book Linguistic Diversity by David Nettle, who is an anthropologist of language. The book has a map showing the thickness of languages on ground – this is how many languages there are per unit of area – which correlates very well with the temperature. Nettle shows that just as there are more species per unit of area in the equator, so there are more languages more thickly spread in the equatorial areas than there are in the rest of the world. Isn't that fascinating? Ludwig Wittgenstein famously said, 
the limits of my language mean the limits of my world. Do you agree with that? Let us know. Just say the word. Just say the word. This episode was produced by me, Yulia Stancheva, for Alpha CRC. My co-hosts are Paul Mangel and Balnor Jekseni. Sound design, Alpha Studios. Audio engineers, Gerard Rodriguez and Mikos Nanazi. With special thanks to our guest, Clive Smith, and our talented voice actors, Kenny Blight and Gabriel Poras. If you like this show, please rate, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss another episode. Thank you for listening. We will be back in two weeks' time. Just say the word. 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 This podcast was brought to you by Alpha CRC. Global enterprise localization, local user experience.